Welcome to Sojourner True. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Today on Sojourner Truth, one of two contentious and highly watched court trials are now taking place, both of which will have an impact on race relations in the country. One of them is the trial of three white men accused of killing a young black jogger last year in broad daylight in Georgia. Armand Aubrey was shot on February 23, 2020 by Gregory and Travis McMichael and pursued by William Bryan. The other case and our focus today is the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse, the 18-year-old young white man who shot and killed Joseph Rosenbaum and Anthony Huber, as well as seriously wounded Gage Grossgrits. The jury in the trial will begin deliberations today. The panel of 18 jurors, which includes eight men and 10 women, and only one person of color, will be narrowed down to the 12 who will deliberate the case by a random drawing using a raffle tumbler uh, today. This is Tuesday morning. Our guest is Karen Cutson, president of CWA Local 7250, who has been active in protest in solidarity with George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter uh, movement. Uh, he is based in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And we speak with iconic indigenous climate justice campaigner, Tom Goldtooth, executive director of the environment sorry, of the Indigenous Environmental Network. He gives his thoughts on the UN Climate Justice Conference that was held in Glasgow, Scotland and wrapped up this past Sunday. And we will hear what Tom thinks about the outcome, which many are saying that COP26, as the conference it was named, was indeed not only a disappointment, but in many ways, a failure. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted, women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. For Pacifica Radio, I'm Eileen Alfandari. Jurors are set to begin deliberating at the Kyle Rittenhouse murder trial after two weeks of testimony. In closing arguments, Prosecutor Thomas Finger called Rittenhouse a wannabe soldier who was looking for trouble that night, repeatedly showing the jury drone video he said depicted Rittenhouse pointing the AR-style weapon at demonstrators. This is a case in which a 17-year-old teenager killed two unarmed men and severely wounded a third person with an AR-15 that did not belong to him. This isn't a situation where he was protecting his home or his family. He killed people after traveling here from Antioch, Illinois, and staying out after a citywide curfew. Defense attorney Mark Richards told the jury his client was set upon by a mob and fired his weapon to defend himself. Every person who was shot was attacking Kyle. One with a skateboard, one with his hands, one with his feet, one with a gun. Hands and feet can cause great bodily harm. 
The night of chaos came after a white police officer shot Jacob Blake in the back seven times, leaving him with a permanent spinal cord injury. With a verdict near Wisconsin, Governor Tony Evers said 500 National Guard members would be prepared for duty in Kenosha if local law enforcement requested them. A Georgia Superior Court judge denied mistrial requests at the trial of three white men charged with murdering black jogger Ahmaud Arbery. The request came after the Reverend Jesse Jackson joined Arbery's parents in court. Defense attorney Kevin Goff asked the judge to make the civil rights leader leave to avoid unfairly influencing the jury. Goff drew a comparison to how jurors might be intimidated if members of the mafia were to be in court when a member of the mob was on trial. I certainly don't mean to suggest that Al Sharpton or Jesse Jackson or any other pastor belong to a mob, but at the same time, we are talking about organized behavior by whoever outside the courthouse leading up to this case. We have all these community leaders fearful that the city's going to burn down. This isn't a mob case. If you testify against a gangster, they might burn your house down. You might burn your business down. They're not going to burn your whole city down. Superior Court Judge Timothy Walmsley denied the request for a mistrial and said it was reprehensible that Goff complained about black pastors in the courtroom. China has welcomed a virtual meeting between President Xi Jinping and President Joe Biden as raising hopes for better relations. The two spoke for three and a half hours via a video link. Biden set the tone for the conversation to come. As I've said before, it seems to me our responsibility as leaders of China and the United States is to ensure that the competition between our countries does not veer into conflict, whether intended or unintended. Just simple, straightforward competition. It was their first formal meeting since Biden took office. Xi welcomed the U.S. leader as his old friend, and a Chinese foreign ministry spokesperson said the exchange was candid and constructive. Longtime Donald Trump ally Steve Bannon briefly appeared before a federal judge after surrendering to FBI agents. He faces two federal contempt charges for defying a subpoena from the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th Capitol insurrection. Bannon was defiant as he left the courthouse. I'm telling you right now, this is going to be the misdemeanor from hell for Merrick Garland, Nancy Pelosi and Joe Biden. Joe Biden ordered. Merrick Garland to prosecute me from the White House lawn when he got off Marine One. And we're going to do, we're going to go on the offense. We're tired of playing defense. We're going to go on the offense on this and stand by. They took on the wrong guy this time, okay? They took on the wrong guys. One of the counts charges him with refusing to appear for a congressional deposition. The other is for refusing to provide documents in response to the committee's subpoena. Bannon will be arraigned on Thursday. The judge released him without bail, but required him to surrender his passport and to check in weekly with court officials. Drug maker Pfizer has signed a deal with the United Nations-backed group to allow other manufacturers to make its experimental COVID-19 pill. The move could help make the treatment available to more than half the world's population. It lets generic drug companies make the pill for use in 95 countries, The deal excludes some large countries with manufacturing capacity. Doctors Without Borders said it was disheartened. The Pfizer deal does not make the drug available to the entire world, noting the exclusion of China, Argentina, and Thailand. I'm Eileen Alfandari for Pacifica Radio. 
And this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. We are now going to uh, kick off our show by turning our attention to the climate uh, conference that took place in Glasgow, Scotland. It wrapped up this past uh, weekend, this past Saturday. A lot of disappointment with what came out of the conference on Saturday, November 13th, the UN Climate Change Conference known as COP26 came to a close. The conference, which took place in Glasgow, Scotland, has been described by many as a failure and a disappointment. And like many of the decisions that came out of the COP26 uh, climate summit, the final agreement has been widely critiqued as being weak and ineffective. Waiting in the wings to speak with us is, is Tom Goldtooth. He'll be able to fill us in on everything we really need to know. Um, initially, negotiators at COP26 claimed they wanted a faster phase out of coal and fossil fuel subsidies. Afterwards, they pushed for ending what they described as unabated coal burning and inefficient subsidies. A third draft of the agreement suggested accelerating efforts toward their phase out. After being watered down and by the time diplomats finalized a text they could agree to, the term was downgraded to phase down um, of the use of unabated uh, coal, uh, great weakening there. Although world governments have agreed to a weak climate deal, which only gets uh, some say slightly closer to holding temperatures to a rise of 2.5. Well, that remains to be seen. I don't think they're really close to 2.5 in terms of what they agree, agreed to. The fossil fuel lobby dramatically succeeded in watering down the push to phase out coal power, pledging instead to phase down. Developing nations of the global south, meanwhile, which have been hardest hit by climate change, were left with next to nothing. Many say that any chance of having uh, fast rising emissions by 2013, of halving those, cutting them in half, the stated goal of the talks, is now just about impossible and frontline indigenous communities and environmental activists have reacted by calling for renewed actions against climate devastation. And meanwhile, U.S. President Joe Biden has attempted to sell himself as a progressive on the issue of climate change, in contrast to Donald Trump, who after all ca called climate change a hoax. However, many say that Biden's actions at COP26 have shown the limited scope in which the United States is willing uh, to truly um, work on climate change, in particular working with frontline communities in the United States, as well as developing countries to meet international climate goals. Biden's climate envoy, John Kerry, is, is, is staying firm on U.S. positions around money for developing countries. They've been staunch in setting limits on how much cash the United States will give to help worse off countries adapt to climate change. These are, are countries, by the way, who are not the main emitters 
uh, to cause climate change, but who are paying the heaviest price. Many have urged um, Biden to remove provisions promoting logging, forest biomass, and fossil fuels from the multi-trillion dollar infrastructure and reconciliation Build Back Better bills. Although wealthy countries are overwhelmingly responsible for climate devastation, we know who pays the highest price. But global uh, North countries are focused on mitigation, not on adaptation, and it's funds to help uh, those who are on the front lines uh, to adapt to combat environmental devastation has become a major point of contention as countries of the global north, in particular the United States, are balking at paying up. And many have pointed out that the global north nations are trying to transfer its responsibilities for the climate crisis onto uh, indigenous communities internationally and the rest of the developing world. So um, here we go. We are thrilled and, and delighted, actually. It's an honor to welcome back to Sojourner Truth, Tom Goldtooth, Executive Director of the Indigenous Environmental Network. Tom Goldtooth has been awarded with recognition for his achievements through the past uh, four decades as a campaigner for social change and indigenous-based just transition within indigenous and environmental and climate justice movements. From the strength of his community organizing and leadership, he has brought the local issues of environmental, economic, energy, climate, water, and food justice, and the rights of indigenous peoples to the national and international levels. He's won numerous awards, including the Gandhi Award and the Sierra Club's highest recognition, the John Muir uh, Award. Um, Mr. Goldtooth is a Sundance leader. He is an icon. He's a, a dad, a grandpa, and a great-grandfather. He was in Glasgow um, for the events that took place there around the UN conference. Tom Goldtooth, thank you so very much for joining us. I'm not hearing uh, Tom Goldtooth. Is he on the line with us? Okay, I think you are going to... Yeah, can you hear me? Yeah, Tom, are you there? Yes, I can hear yeah. you now. Thank you. Okay. Thanks, Tom. I know how busy your schedule is, and we appreciate well, you joining us. And you'll be able yeah, to break it all down for us. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I mean, I think, uh, thank you for your intro. That kind of really did a good breakdown. But, uh, you know, I, you know, I try to be positive on these meetings and uh, a lot of people took part from all over the world. Again, you know, one of our concerns, you know, going to this uh, COP26 was just that the difficulty our brothers and sisters from the global south, our indigenous peoples, you know, just had struggles just to get to the COP. Um but uh, nevertheless, yeah, it, it was the COP was scheduled to end on Friday afternoon. But again, the folks upstairs in major northern industrialized countries, you know, the banks, large NGOs, the corporations, they all wanted an agreement. Um, and so they went into Saturday as an overtime. But, you know, 
you know, the the result was not an achievement, you know, of the of the most uh, ambitious goal of of um, the 2015 Paris Agreement that we were part of, and that's to limit, you know, Mother Earth's warming, you know, to 1.5 degrees Celsius. It figures out to about 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, and many of the delegates left frustrated, you know, uh, you know, and and there were quite a, a number of of countries that felt that hey, they were forced to compromise in order to come out of that that uh, that uh, you know that meeting. And uh, in in my my analysis is that you know the outcome of this uh, UN meeting you know locks us into another decade of false solutions, you know, and it's all part of colonialism that we've been fighting. And again, I mean, we're going to see more uh, pipelines. We're going to see more tanker travel, you know, trains. We're going to see the continuation of the extraction and the combustion of fossil fuels, you know, and our, you've heard me say this before, but this is, this is a unbridled violence upon the sacredness of our Mother Earth. You know, it's nothing more, nothing less than that. You know, it's going to be the expansion of what we've been elevating and, and uh, around false solutions of carbon markets, uh, cap and trade, like what's implemented in California, uh, carbon offsets is part of that, you know, geoengineering techno fixes carbon capture and storage and and also you know large financing initiatives investments that really will that will allow historical polluters to ramp up their you know domestic here in the US and Canada but global fossil fuel production and which will only intensify you know the, the climate crisis and so you know, I, I am concerned. Our delegation, we brought 18 people, Native people from the U.S. and Alaska. Our sister organization, uh, Indigenous Climate Action Canada, also brought about the same number. We brought some people with us from Brazil as well. And, um, yeah, um, you know, the consequences here are going to be dire and and will impact, you know, uh, our survival, I think it's that intense, especially our brothers and sisters of the Arctic. The ice is melting up there. Um, and, uh, you know, we try to lift up, you know, when we're there, uh, you know, a lot of this, the, the issues of concern. And there were a lot of of, of uh, community-based organizations from throughout the world uh, organizations like Friends of the Earth as well, USA Greenpeace, um, and many others that uh, agreed with us that uh, that the government cannot allow the continuation of these false solutions as part of their mitigation and adaptation plan. But nevertheless, you know, money talks in those hallways. We were, you know, we were very, you know, strengthened. By, by the voices of our indigenous peoples globally that called it out, you know. And one of our 
our uh, one of the chiefs in our delegation from the Hunakwai people from Acre, Brazil, um, you know, said it like it was in in a large event. He said there's lack of spirituality in these negotiations, and that's been you know quite consistent. And our analysis is that as indigenous peoples, you know, we have original instructions, we have traditional knowledge that uh, our solutions, and we did talk about these, um, but, uh, you know, we're dealing with an uh, industrialized society that's been removed from understanding their their relationship and their duties and responsibilities to, to protect that sacredness of Mother Earth and Father Sky. And, uh, but there was a lot of progress, I believe, in, in the organizing being done by indigenous peoples with with other organizations you know there are over what uh you know there were about a hundred thousand people in the streets of glasgow on the global uh action day the march and the people's summit which is an alternative civil society events that happened during these governmental meetings and so i was uh very inspired by the by the uh, the growing concern uh, throughout the world on these issues. And uh, uh, there's a lot of work that needs to be done, definitely, as we come home to the United States. Uh, there's a lot of work as we look at the bipartisan legislation, uh, the infrastructure legislation, uh, and they're moving pretty fast. Yeah. And carved into those are false solutions that aren't going to uh, get uh, the United States to fulfill its pledges uh, on cutting back its emissions. It's full of false solutions. Uh, carbon capture and storage and carbon pricing mechanisms that do not cut emissions at source. Uh, a lot of people think that it does. It doesn't. Um, not at the level that we need uh, so, you know, there's a lot of organizing work state by state, uh, community by community to, uh, you know, put, create that political will of the politicians uh, to, to, make real, to make real solutions and real reductions. Uh, so we've got to look at uh, these initiatives that's coming out of Congress and, and be really critical of them um, and, and lift up... Uh, uh, you know, real solutions that has been coming out of community. Um. Right. Yes. And, and, and Tom Goldtooth, I mean, even as we speak, headlines are saying that an atmospheric river is flooding uh, the Pacific Northwest, at least one person missing, a school's closed, hundreds of people having to be rescued. So increasingly, everywhere we are, we are feeling the impacts of climate change. But I want to focus a little bit on what you're calling a uh, false solution. 
and uh, what could be solutions? Because, for example, we know that on indigenous lands, uh, the issue of mining, whether it's the Navajo Nation with the uranium uh, mining, the Apache people who have been at Oak Flat are resisting um, as they could the fact of uh, the their most sacred land being given over to one of the largest uh, copper mining uh, places in the world. Uh, so we we see that kind of destruction happening. But when it comes to some of the rare earth and some of the mining, uh, the copper mining in particular, that's needed. Copper is needed for batteries, for solar, for electric cars. And I don't think uh, a lot of people are thinking about how this could be done or even about the devastation happening on indigenous lands to try to uh, get this material uh, that will help to so-called create the green economy. I wonder if you have some thoughts on this, Tom Goldtooth. Well, definitely. I'm, I think one of the one of the things that I have spoke about is that in in the United States, there's an addiction to extraction. There's an, an addiction to energy and waste. We waste too much, um, and uh, in a lot of these discussions in this country, uh, I still do not hear enough from politicians willing to address the issue of. We're using too much energy, and we really need to address that issue. We consume too much, um, and uh, this concerns also, you know, when we shift away, uh, when we shift, you know, away from a fossil fuel economy, and that's something we are pushing as IEN, but also we have to also work on uh, educating Americans that, are we going to shift away from a fossil economy to uh, an energy uh, demand that really is not sustainable? You know, just how many uh, solar installations and wind turbines and, and water generators do we need to meet an unsustainable energy addiction of the U.S.? That really needs to be addressed. Because that relates also to alternatives, you know. Uh, all, you know, most of these uh, like solar systems and wind turbines depend on batteries as well. So that we have to start asking some serious questions in this country, um, and how we're going to make this transition. You know, we talk about moving away from capitalism, but where are we moving to? Are we moving towards socialism? Are we moving towards other isms? We really need to have this discussion, uh, you know, and it's uh, it's going to involve all cultures to do that. You know, I, I did talk about some of the solutions, you know, that that we also are doing, such as our recent report uh, uh, that IEN did with the Oil Change International titled Indigenous uh, Resistance Against Carbon. That revealed that, uh, you know, indigenous resistance to carbon over the past decade, that's fossil fuels, that our resistance has stopped projects equivalent to 400 new coal-fired power plants or roughly 345 million new passenger vehicles. So this resistance that we have 
that we have in this country from frontline Indian country, including Canada, uh, has been able to to uh, to have substantial, you know, uh, uh, solutions. Um, and uh, you know, we will continue. We will continue to fight the fight on the front line where we need to. But I think we're also seeing that part of this fighting the fight and front line is in is is within the matrix system. We've been engaging, you know, cautiously. We've been engaging on on on, on the Hill in Washington D.C. on policy changes, and that's really challenging, definitely, because many of our our uh, native uh, organizations don't have a policy culture. I mean, U.S. colonial culture to change policy. But uh, you know, we have some good folks, uh, and we're engaged in front line on some of those areas. And so it's going to be a lot of battles. And and this matrix system that I mentioned a lot. You mentioned false solutions. You know, it is around this issue of carbon markets. Uh, and geoengineering technologies, and uh, and uh, we're tasked with trying to break that down. What is that, and what does that mean to us as Native people? If we're going to, for an example, participate in carbon credits as tribes, how do we reconcile our traditional knowledge participating in the system that's part of the privatization of air, of carbon, the trading of carbon? Before we bring uh, carbon into a market system, you have to determine whose property right issue it is. So it's a property right issue. It's a privatization issue. That violates a lot of that traditional knowledge that I've I've heard and learned uh, from many of our different tribal peoples. But we do have some tribes participating in that now. Carbon markets, carbon trading, and... uh, you know, it's a serious issue for Indian country as well as the rest of the uh, the communities here in this country and the world. We got indigenous peoples that are losing land, land grabs from these market systems. Where the bottom line is, the polluters who are buying the carbon credits in the trees in the Amazon, so they end up owning the trees, not our indigenous wow. peoples. So when it comes right down to it. The, the market system of trading of carbon uh, is a speculative system, and uh, there's a lot of protectionism from the investors and the trading regimes that worry about the value of, the, of, of carbon in these trading mechanisms going up and down. The more that you can protect the trees that the polluters own from being being uh, uh, cut by local communities, that's, a, that's emerging as a big factor to, to where there are actually parks, ranger parks, uh, park rangers in Ecuador that prevent into indigenous people from going into their forested areas to get items out of it, to get the materials. So it's a serious issue. Um, and uh, the, the Build Back Better Act uh, on the Hill you know, we need to really look at that because the language in there does allow the increase of fossil fuel subsidies. 
It, it's nearly doubling tax credits for carbon capture and storage at power plants. Uh, it's the top of the, you know, of the billions in new fossil fuel subsidies. Even though there's some language that uh, that Biden said is that they're going to they're going to address the subsidies issues, but right now it, it's in there. And how we're going to make sure that our politicians are walking the talk. Absolutely. And uh, Tom Goldtooth, I, I know your, your time is limited, mm -hmm. but I also wanted to ask you this about uh, the land itself, because one of the things I keep hearing from indigenous communities and the, the rights of Mother Earth and uh, just looking at the land itself, we see the land being poisoned in all of the ways that you have, have described. Also, you know, there is the slogan, keep the oil uh, in the soil, but also we know that uh, many, uh, you know, the uh, huge amounts of money are being given to agro business who are then using GE trees, all kinds of pesticides that then go into the soil, pollute uh, the water, and certainly in indigenous communities, but also some uh, black communities in, in the South and elsewhere, uh, plants that are used for ceremony, plants that are used for healing, uh, then become uh, polluted. So the issue also, uh, you know, I want your thoughts on this and about uh, the movement of people who are saying, wait a minute, we have to uh, respect the soil, the land in and of itself and stop this and actually do the work as some people in India, some villages have started doing of soil regeneration. But it also, soil regeneration also has to do with a lot of the ways that indigenous people traditionally have grown food. You know what I mean? Without uh, the pollution, without the, the GE trees. I wonder if you could talk about that aspect uh, also uh, of, you know, stopping uh, climate change. Tom Goldtooth. Yeah. yeah, there's some terminology that, uh, you know, I'm always cautious on how I throw that out because it, 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 it all has definitions. Um, you know, such as nature-based solutions. That terminology was very popular at the COP26. We saw it come out in Madrid in 2019 at the Conference of the Parties COP25, nature-based solutions. And uh, we looked at it, and people say, you know, well, what's, what's about time? The governments and the corporations... And the financiers, you know, starting to learn that they have to protect nature, you know. But we looked at it. It was just a rebranding of using carbon offsets and carbon market systems in biodiversity and soils and land and trees and atmosphere. Um, and I spoke to this just last week about you know, planting the seeds of climate chaos is a big issue, confusion. Uh, and we know that Mother Earth breathes, her soils breathe, the, the exchange between the atmosphere and the carbon and plants and trees and grasslands and mangroves, you know, there's an exchange that's happening. That's part of that sacredness of that cycle of life. Even the whole universe breathes. But right now, 
when we talk about now not only the inclusion of trees in the carbon offset market system, now the matrix is venturing into soils to sequester carbon in the soil. So they're approaching farmers and uh, tricking them to use their farms so the U.S. government and big oil can, can, can pollute more while pretending to save the climate. So again, where does that money come from when a farmer is approached or a tree, people that own trees are saying, we'll give you money, you know, and uh, to protect your trees and not to turn your soils, uh, to sequester the carbon in your soils. By the way, that also involves introducing some GMO climate-friendly seeds as well. Because the polluter now buys the carbon in the soils with the idea that it's going to regenerate the soil, restore the soil. Uh, so, you know, it, it's our indigenous farmers, you know, who plant original native seeds that feed humanity. And we've been rejecting these GMO climate-friendly seeds. So... It's a question of, you know, this forced choice around money and the temptation of money that is a temptation of portraying the very essence of our being and and applying our traditional knowledge, it's very important, that says that so-called farming carbon, that's a goal of the, also this you know, U.S. has a, an agriculture innovation mission for climate. It's called AIM4C. Um, that it's carbon farming that's promoted by Monsanto. It's promoted by McDonald's. It's promote, promoted by the by the uh, petroleum industry that perverts the creative principles of Mother Earth. So, growing carbon credits instead of food. Uh, so big oil can keep on fracking and drilling and making global warming worse, creates the climate chaos that 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 our delegation saw at the COP25, and and it's a it's a spiral of compounding change. Orrin Lyons uh, told me one time to use compounding change in 2002 in Johannesburg, South Africa, and we use that word because. This change that's happening is compounding in many different circles and levels uh, in our life here on the planet. So, uh, you know, our voice is that, you know, we reject, uh, you know, the polluters and their carbon cowboy brokers of carbon offsets uh, asking our farms, our farmers, native and non-native, to be a carbon sponge for corporate pollution instead of cutting admissions of source. Again, this this carbon offset stuff does not cut admissions at source. It's a trading instrument. That's what it is. Right. Well, thank you. Thank you for that. Uh, Tom Goldtooth, we do carry... Um, we
link with the website of the Indigenous Environmental Network on our website here at Sojourner Truth. And so we encourage people to go to the website, just incredible work that Indigenous Environmental Network has done. And over the years, we've tried to do what we can uh, to support uh, your efforts. And and Tom, just be, before you have to before you have to jump off, any uh, quick final thoughts for us as we are moving, looking to move forward, Tom Goldtooth. Well, again, uh, you know, we've been very consistent with trying to educate and and wake up the world that they have to. You know, the world has to reevaluate its relationship to the sacredness of Mother Earth. Uh, that's really important, especially coming out of this meeting. Um, and, um, you know, and, and that value system of humanity defines the legal, the legal instruments. If, if humanity doesn't understand those original instructions that we have, that defines how we walk on Mother Earth uh, and defines our duties and responsibilities and respect of Unchimakal, the Grandmother Earth, and our relationship, you know, to the sky and the universe and to all life. If humanity doesn't have that, then, you know, we're really in, in a situation to where, I, you know, I do have some fears. Uh, about policies that are being developed to 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 address uh, climate change and address the over uh, uh, consumption of of Mother Earth's uh, uh, life forms in this in this world too, the oceans and uh, again, you know, the final frontier that I believe is existing that we need to have a wake up call is this movement towards the financialization of nature itself. It's a part of a colonial system. It's a global economic globalization process right now that privatizes the air we breathe. It, uh, you know, it's, it's, it, it, it uses the term net zero, you know, net zero, net, you know, zero emissions, they're, they're based upon the assumption that fossil fuel emissions can be compensated for by carbon offset. So we're saying no to net zero. We need real reductions, real solutions, and keep fossil fuels in the ground. Tom Goldtooth, I'm sure that was the message. There's a famous photo of you meeting Prince Charles of, of England uh, when you were there, and I'm pretty sure you had a similar message to him that you're sharing with us right now. So we appreciate you. We appreciate your work, and thank you for taking the time to join us and break this all down for us. Tom Goldtooth, thank you. Yeah, thank you. All righty. We are at, we're going to take a very short station break. We did run a little long um, with uh, our first uh, segment. Well worth it, I think. And uh, coming up, we will be uh, going to the trial that's going on now of Kyle Rittenhouse. Uh, and we will be speaking with Karen Goodson, who is based in uh, Minnesota. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Oh, cinnamon, where are you going to run to? Cinnamon, where you gonna run to? Where you gonna run to? All on that 
All righty, and that's the great late uh, Nina Simone Sinnerman. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. Check out our website at sotrueradio.org where you'll have a community calendar, videos, and much more. If you're a member of Facebook, you can like and friend us there. Our handle on Instagram and Twitter at sotrueradio. And we are heard nationwide and worldwide on SoundCloud and today in the U.S., I'd like to give a, sa- a shout out to our SoundCloud uh, listeners in Willits, California. Willits, California, uh, quite a strong listenership uh, there. And I also will have to say I want to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in 29 Palms, uh, California, in the high desert, a growing audience happening there. And internationally, I'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in Australia. Australia, the government representatives at COP26, disgraceful by uh, all accounts. So we appreciate our listeners in Australia. We're now going to turn our attention to um, this uh, trial that is garnering a lot of interest and attention uh, right now The um, of uh, Kyle uh, Rittenhouse, who traveled to Kenosha, Wisconsin, all the way from Antioch, Illinois, with a loaded rifle, which was he was too young to carry. He claimed that he was in Kenosha, um, where uh, protests had broken out uh, following the uh, a Wisconsin police officer shooting in the back and seriously wounding 29-year-old uh, Jacob Blake, a, a black man, and uh, his girlfriend and child were actually in the car when the police did this shooting. And of course, the police have not been held to account, um, no charges against them. Uh, people in Kenosha um, very upset about what had happened. Kyle Rittenhouse showed up fully armed and claimed that he was there, he was protecting a car dealership protecting property from being vandalized. He also said he was there to provide medical aid. He gave no medical aid, but he did shoot three people, uh, two of whom were killed. And then he calmly walked past police officers who seemed to greet him warmly. This after people were shouting to the officers that Rittenhouse had shot someone. And that trial goes to the uh you know, goes to the jury uh, today. So actually what we're going to do, I had a couple of clips prepared, but what I'd like to do is to actually go straight now uh, to welcome our guest, uh, Karen uh, Kutzen, who is president of CWA Local 7250. He's been active in uh, protests against police abuse, not only with uh, George Floyd, but also in what happened um in uh, Kenosha um, with the shooting in the back of Jacob Blake and others. So, um, Karen, welcome back to Sojourner Truth. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate your show a lot. I appreciate your show a lot. Okay, now, uh, your assessment of what is happening with this trial, uh, first of all, the Kyle Rittenhouse trial, the judge uh, seems uh, somewhat off the chain in kind of a weird direction, uh, making racist comments, um, you know, also saying that the 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 
victims who were killed uh, couldn't be referred to as victims, but it was fine to refer to them as looters. And uh, this weirdness now happening with uh, just his instructions to the jury, he paused in the middle of it and didn't seem to be making much sense. Uh, Your thoughts on what's going on? Yeah, I think, you know, I think it's really important that we do put this in the context of everything that happened last year. I think you're right to remind everybody about what happened to Jacob Blake in Kenosha. What's what um, that was right on the heels of what had happened to George Floyd in Minneapolis uh, in the city that I live in, just one, one state over from uh, where Jacob Blake was shot in the back and paralyzed by police there. And the, what made these exceptional was that the response from the communities, you know, who had finally just had enough and they were, you know, popular uprising in Minneapolis that involved tens of thousands of people. And in Kenosha, you know, which is a smaller, uh, formerly industrial city between Milwaukee and Chicago, um, where there's a, you know, long history of, uh, you know, a strong working class, but also one that's divided by race and where racism is a, is a big player in society and in everyday culture, there was a, a response there as well. And just like in Minneapolis, that response included both black and white people who were outraged at the obviously racist police conduct and the near murderous uh, shooting of Jacob Blake. And I think what Rittenhouse really represents was an attempt by the right wing to stifle and um, literally bury that, that spirit of standing up to this. And when the police couldn't do it in a way that that maybe they would have liked to, then these white vigilantes became sort of the um, the stick that was going to be used to try and uh, remind people to stay in their place and not to stand up. And it just happened to be that Rittenhouse was the one that pulled the trigger, but there are a whole number of, of armed right-wing vigilantes in Kenosha. It could have been any of them. And so I think when we understand that context, then we can see the judge's actions as well, because what they really feared was not these these white vigilantes, so-called protecting property over people, but they really feared the sort of the, the growing anger around the country at police murders and at racism and wanted to nip that in the bud. And so I think the judge is looking out for the people that were trying to help, you know, play that role. And Almost all of his rulings have been aimed at trying to, you know, shore up the defense's position. At least that's how it looks from from where I sit. Yeah, and I mean, looking at the coverage from the mainstream media, including the New York Times on down, there seems to be, you know, an effort to kind of paint uh, Kyle Rittenhouse is just this sympathetic figure, just this kid appealing, uh, you know, to um, white suburbia that this could be your son and him breaking down and, and weeping and, uh, you know, just quite a lot of sympathy for him. And certainly not much, if any, being shown at all for those who were killed, not to mention uh, Jacob Blake, who has yet to see uh, any justice. And I understand his father is outside the courthouse on a regular basis. But you're right to put this um, in uh, context here with this rise of vigilantism 
uh, Kieran and um, and militias across the country because he Kyle Rittenhouse is a cause celeb among the white nationalists uh, right and they've raised thousands of dollars you know for him they're coming right. into um, Kenosha um, and you know if you contrast how Trayvon Martin for example how he was viewed like he was a criminal all he was doing was walking with some skittles and iced tea as opposed to a man, a young man, uh, you know, coming in armed, you know, um, just, just your thoughts on this. I mean, mean, I'm outraged. What you're saying is absolutely right. I think it really shows the the structural racism in the mainstream of society um, that, that is able to see someone like Rittenhouse as someone defending themselves when they're, you know, an outsider that's been brought into a city um, and kills people that are actually from the city who are outraged about what happened to Jacob Blake. And so it really shows, you know, how the, the system and our, um, the legal structure gives certain rights to uh, some people and not to others. And in this case, you know, the people that he shot were actually white as well, but they had crossed a line where they were, you know, no longer behaving as, um, as loyal people towards the system, but we're, but we're joining with their, you know, black brothers and sisters and being outraged at what had happened to Jacob Blake. And because that movement represented such a threat to the system, I think, then any means necessary to quell it were, um, were endorsed. And, um, and in that case, you know, Rittenhouse is presented as a, you know, upstanding citizen who was doing his best to protect and preserve the social order. And that's, you know, kind of the same goal of the, of much of the legal system. Yeah. And, and I mean, if, if you look at, I mean, here is Rittenhouse armed with a Smith and Wesson M&P 15, right? A weapon that he really shouldn't be, have much less show up. Uh, with it, but yet, you know, it was ruled, well, you know, you really can't pay attention to that because he was within his rights of carrying that weapon. But you know what? Imagine, uh, Karen, which a a lot of us who are of African descent think, imagine if it was Rittenhouse was a young black man who had, was, came to that protest armed with a weapon like that, shot and killed two white people and and wounded another, and then being greeted warmly by the police. Could you imagine even such a scenario? So, you know, and then the outrage that came up after George Floyd, after uh, Jacob Blake. Now the flip is, the, the script is being flipped and everybody's going on about critical race theory and all these white housewives who are really worried about their little you know, white children whose ears really can't, you know, be told the truth of what's going on in this country when it when it comes to race. So, you know, just your thoughts on that. What if Kyle were black? I mean, would he yeah. be viewed in the media the way he is right now? It's it's impossible to imagine that it, that he would be, and you know that's obviously sad, but it's a accurate view of of how. Um, you know, race works in terms of upholding power in this society. And yeah, it's impossible to imagine a similar scenario where, um, you know, an African-American 17 year old was carrying an automatic uh, 
or semi-automatic rifle through the streets of the city and uh, shooting people uh, and the, the, that the system would embrace them. Yeah, it's impossible to imagine that. And I, I think it really just, it, it speaks to, you know, where we're at in terms of, um, you know, sort of sides being, being drawn and the fact that, that white supremacy has made, made it so people's sense of reality is so distorted is a, you know, a hard and dangerous thing. And um, I think you're also right that there's this polarization that's happening right now in which unfortunately a large group of people, not just white, but, but heavily white are being consolidated around a really right wing reactionary and um, dangerous pole in society. Um, and so we have to, you know, we have to organize, I think, number one, to defend ourselves and to make sure that our communities and our movements can operate and live safely. But then we also have to try and undermine, you know, that, that consolidation of, of this right wing, because the truth of it is, is, you know, objectively anyways, we should have, you know, people like Rittenhouse who come from working class families shouldn't be on the side of the elite and shouldn't be on the side of the state after the police kill someone. Um, we should be trying to, you know, pull people like that over to our side. That's not an easy task, much easier said than done. But I think we have to start doing things that will undermine the grip that those kind of politics are, are taking on, on a large number of people in the U.S. Absolutely. And, and you're absolutely right about that, because we know that race has been used to divide us in this country. Um, a, a, a lot of... Uh, anti-racist white people. We saw the death of Heather Heyer in Charlottesville. Now we see the 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 two uh, men who were killed in, by Kyle Rittenhouse, as you say, and injured people. I mean, this is a, was a multiracial uprising across the United States, including in Kenosha and across the world. And it does seem to me as though there's an effort to reverse that, uh, to, 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 to really undermine the coming together of people across race uh, to stand up uh, for justice. So, um, you know, we are going to be watching very carefully the outcome of all of this and see if uh, hopefully um, the powers that be, uh, the right wing will not succeed in further dividing us, but good people really finding their way uh, to each other to stand up for racial justice, climate justice, economic justice, and much more. So we will come back to you, uh, Karen uh, Kitson, as we continue to watch what ha what is happening now with this trial. Thank you so much for joining us. We're out of time. Thank you. All righty. Okay. Uh, today's show produced by me. That's Margaret Prescott. I want to thank our audio engineer, Gary Baca, our assistant producer, Romero Funes. If you'd like a copy of today's show, please contact the Pacifica Radio Archives uh, at 1-800-735-0230. Go online to PacificaRadioArchives.org. And this is your host, Margaret Prescott, you all remember to please stay safe. Thank you for listening. Freedom. Freedom.